0: A warm welcome to the final No Ordinary Wednesday of 2021. We've decided to see the year out with a real bang by bringing you a bumper edition packed with possibilities for you and your business to seize in 2022. As part of our possibilities campaign that you may have seen on television or online, investing experts have written a series of six articles that highlight exciting opportunities in everything from energy and infrastructure to investing. You can read all of those articles at com forward slash possibilities. On today's program, we've invited contributors to these articles to talk about the biggest opportunities for individuals or businesses in the year ahead. So grab a coffee or your holiday tipple of choice, if I can say that, settle into your deck chair and listen to this slightly longer edition of No Ordinary Wednesday. It's an in-depth look at the events and trends, moving markets and shaping the economy and changing the game. I'm Jeremy Max. Omicron aside, the question at the top of everyone's load-shedding fatigue minds, will South Africa's energy crisis improve in 2022? It certainly seems likely with government announcing a game-changing decision to allow private companies to generate up to 100 megawatts of their own power. South Africa also secured a 131 billion rand pledge from Western countries to phase out coal at the recent COP26. Climate Summit. So possibilities certainly abound for enterprising businesses to generate not just power, but also societal benefits and long-term profit. Someone who's watching these events unfold with a great deal of interest is the head of Investex power and infrastructure financing team, Martin Mayer. So Martin, first of all, a very warm welcome to you. The 100-megawatt announcement was welcomed by the private sector earlier in the year. But here's the question, as we reflect on a very difficult 2021, is it going to bring significant opportunity for your clients in the next 12 months?
1: Yeah, oh, thanks, Jamie. Look, we're working in, we're operating in quite an interesting space at the moment. We're seeing a lot of movement from reliance on ESCOM into private sector generating their own power. At the same time, we're seeing Eskom looking to procure new renewable generation as well. So we really are seeing a lot of activity in in, in this space. The move to 100 megawatts really does move the dial. Prior to the movement, companies could only put a one megawatt system on their roof to help out with their generation. They can now move that to, to 100 megawatts. We've already seen big corporates and mining houses putting out requests for proposals for the development of these power plants. We estimate that, Up to five billion rands worth of investment into these power plants will take place over the next two to three years. And we've seen probably five or six RFPs already in the market. These deals will more than likely close in the second half of, of next year. And that creates both investment opportunity for our clients, as well as the civils, the engineering side, the actual building of the plant. So there's a whole lot of opportunity that comes with this announcement. Well, the companies themselves, they, in addition to obviously on the development side, from a supply side, the companies themselves are getting a lower electricity bill together with the latest buzzword, which is decarbonization. So we're seeing companies looking to decarbonize, and this makes them a lot more attractive for for the export market. So there's a whole host of of opportunity we see here. So yes, whilst we probably won't see it in the first six months, 2022, this is definitely going to get massive traction in, in, in the latter half of next year.
0: You've also written, Martin, about other possibilities in the energy space, uh, green hydrogen innovation and energy storage that would hopefully make a better, an easier life would make a difference for society and business in general. What do you think then is going to emerge as the single biggest opportunity in the energy sector? Let's say over the next, uh, Three to five years in the short to medium term.
1: Now, there's been been a lot of a lot of talk around green hydrogen, and it, and it is a buzzword. We we don't believe that that green hydrogen is a, is a short to medium term opportunity. We think that opportunity is probably probably five to ten years away. So, whilst that will be opportunity, we don't see that as an immediate opportunity. Where we see big opportunity, and it's it's sort of probably twofold where, where, where we see the opportunity, it's coming through in storage, so energy storage, well as as grid infrastructure. So ESCIM have have announced that they need a lot of input, a lot of maintenance, a lot of work that needs to go into their grid infrastructure. We see a lot of opportunity in strengthening the grid, um, anything peripheral with regards grid infrastructure, we see that as as one big opportunity. And the other opportunity is energy storage. So battery storage, the cost of battery storage has come down significantly over the last while, and it's starting to become really economical for companies and power plants to start looking at at energy storage. So we see see battery storage as a big opportunity with the big rollout of renewables, you're gonna need battery storage to effectively stabilize the grid, to maximize peak periods, so typically your renewables, when the sun shines, is not necessarily when you're using the most power. So you need to be able to store that power and then put that in into the system during, during peak period. We see the rollout of, of energy storage as a big opportunity. This together with Eskim decommissioning some of their power plants over the coming years, those connection points are, are going to need to be used for alternative ways to, to connect into the grid. And we see, see storage as a big opportunity there too.
0: I want to move away from pure energy now, and let's look at the concept of sustainable infrastructure projects. It's the topic in the second article in the Possibility series. The article's premised on the so-called dawn of a new era in public-private partnerships in infrastructure. That rolls off the tongue very well, but we've heard it before. From your side, are you seeing real evidence of government being more open to work with the private sector in this respect?
1: We most definitely, our government have come a long way over the last couple of years with regards PPPs as, as they shortened public private partnership or PPPs. And we've seen this in various guises. Infrastructure South Africa has, has seconded private sector individuals and themselves have seconded an employee into infrastructure South Africa. And they're looking to really drive the structuring of, of infrastructure projects, driving the regulations around PPPs, ensuring that, that these projects are adequately structured. They've realized that there is a skill shortage within government and, and they've been seconded the private sector into, to assist them with this. And this, this has come over the last sort of two years. In the last 18 months, they've had two symposiums where they've showcased a whole lot of projects that they're planning to bring to market to the public. The first set of projects, it's amazing when you look at the difference between the first set of projects and the second set of projects, how far they actually have come in terms of structuring. The first set of projects, they were not bankable, whereas the progression to the next set of projects that they've released, you can see that they've really asked on to structure these projects properly, The PPP regulations are being reworked. They were inefficient. It took a long time to get projects through these various approval processes, and and that was restricting a lot of these projects coming to market. So we really are seeing government coming to the party. They set up the infrastructure fund within the DBSA, and that is also being used to drive structure, but they have raised a whole lot of cash that they will then use to seed these projects, to drive these projects, and to fund certain parts of them where private sector are unable to come to the party. So we really are seeing government driving this process quite hard.
0: So that's good news. There is a little bit of acceleration in that perspective, but you'll agree with me, Martin, it's all predicated on timing. A lot of these projects, as you've said, have failed to materialize. There's still a lot of uh, discussion around it. Are you confident then that 2022 possibly is going to be a year of real traction in that
1: respect? We think so, Jeremy. And, and when we talk real traction, do we think we're going to see five to ten projects come come to the market in 2022? No, we don't. What we've repeatedly said to government is is come to the market to one or two projects, let's get the ball rolling. In our mind, that that is traction in itself. And we really do believe that we'll see one or two projects coming to the market in in, in 2022. One project that has been touted to come to market for some time is the Border Post project, which will be let as a PPP. Um, So we do believe that that's going to come to market. So we really do see some traction. But these are really big projects. These, These require a lot of investment. So we don't see five to ten of these coming every year. But for us, traction will be let's see one or two, let's make it work, let's let's show the private sector, let's show the country that this can work, and from there we we won't look back. Of course, it's not just a
0: South African issue, it's an African issue. So, if you were to look at our northern neighbors and possibly beyond, again, when we're talking about sustainable infrastructure projects, where, Martin Mayer, are the biggest opportunities?
1: When you look at our space and its power and infrastructure, I think power is going to, is really going to keep the market, keep everyone busy, probably for the next 20 years. The rollout, the decarbonization, Power is going to keep this this industry busy for a long, long time. In addition to power, we're seeing a lot of social infrastructure projects coming to market in in our neighbouring uh, countries. A lot of them are not necessarily funded by the private sector, but clearly the private sector are there contracting and building these hospitals, these schools. All of these these projects really are going to make a difference to our continent and to to our neighbours. So we're seeing social infrastructure. We think hardcore transport infrastructure is going to be a big play on the continent too. We need these corridors to be developed to evacuate minerals, to evacuate various aspects driving these landlocked economies to the coast and enable them to export So we see sort of road and rail as also massive, massive projects with the conflict need.
0: And that's a very broad canvas that you have painted for us. Martin Mayer, head of Investec's power and infrastructure financing team, thank you for joining us on No Ordinary Wednesday. Thank you, Jamie. In a moment, we'll talk to Investec Wealth and Investments chief investment strategist who has a surprisingly upbeat take on what is in store for South African investors next year. But first, a reminder that No Ordinary Wednesday will resume on the 15th of January next year. Please don't miss it. Subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the channel, please rate us. It's been a year of economic turmoil for South Africa, the looting in July, the ongoing impact of the pandemic, the global supply chain crisis. Despite all of that, our new finance minister Enoch Godongwana's maiden medium-term budget policy statement was positively received by the investment community. Chris Holdsworth, the Chief Investment Strategist of Investec Wealth and Investment. So, Chris, welcome back to the program. Let's start with this. In your article about possibilities for investors, you say much depends on the U.S. dollar continuing to weaken. Why is that?
2: I think that the primary reason why South African growth is surprised over the past 12 months has been the strong performance of commodities in particular. Our trade surplus has been gargantuan. We've seen very large revenue surprises for the state. And a lot of that has stemmed from these commodity prices. And typically, when the dollar weakens, commodities do well. So should it be the case that the dollar just remains flat or, or tends to weakness over the coming 12 months, we would still see buoyant commodity prices and therefore support for the South African economy and the tax base
0: you're generally optimistic about South Africa's economic growth prospects in 2022. That's good news. But there's always a caveat, isn't there? You qualify the outlook with a few key risks. You've got the cheery outlook, but what are your principal worries here? The
2: first is electricity. ESCOM remains a constraint on growth in South Africa. We're likely to see load shedding for the coming two years at least. And we are going through a transition phase. We will see companies increasingly generating their own power and consumers shifting off the grid too. But nonetheless, it, it, we are growing at 5% this year. We simply wouldn't be able to grow at 5% next year. We, we just don't have the electricity to allow for that. So that, that's the first key risk. The second is that we are likely to see a fairly significant boost to government revenue relative to expectations. They already revised the number up in October. They're almost certainly going to revise the number up pretty sizably in February. And then the question becomes, where is that money going to go? What is it going to be spent on? Will it be used to reduce debt, which would be Receive very positively? Will we receive an income tax cut, which again, would be received very positively? Or will it be spent on increasing expenditure over the long run that's not consistent with recognizing that we're likely to be receiving a once off boost to revenue. So I think those are the two key concerns to be keeping an eye on for the moment.
0: And let me end with this. In your opinion, then, what do you see as the most significant opportunity for investors in 2022? I think there's a deep
2: underappreciation of the extent to which SA consumption expenditure is likely to pick up. We can already see from the tax data that formal sector incomes in South Africa have already recovered to pre COVID levels. In fact, they've exceeded them. And we know that South Africans are very likely to spend whatever increase in incomes they receive. In addition to that, business confidence, despite having rolled over recently due to the riots we saw in July, is still up materially year on year. And business confidence is the key leading indicator for private sector job creation in South Africa. So we've already seen aggregate incomes recover. We can expect to see a further increase in in jobs over the coming 12 months with associated increase in expenditure and incomes as well. And I think that is deeply underappreciated at this point. So I suspect we see a transition from the improvement in commodity prices helping resource and exports to then starting to improve consumption expenditure from SA individuals as well.
0: And on that positive note, Chris Holdsworth, thank you for joining us on No Ordinary Wednesday. One buzzword I think that took hold in 2021, thanks partly to some wordplay by the Facebook marketing team, was the word metaverse, the virtual space where many of us are increasingly working and interacting. That may have sounded like sci fi pre 2020, but no longer. We welcome now Chris Becker, InvestEx blockchain lead, to shed some light on this brave new meta world. So Chris, firstly, you're excellent at breaking down complicated new digital concepts. So maybe my starting point is this, the metaverse. What exactly is it? And how soon do you think it's gonna go
3: mainstream? Jeremy, the metaverse, one can think of as a digital replica of the actual universe. (laughs) So if you think about uh, the real world that we live in, we're dealing with physical objects uh, and and an economy within that uh, where we have market prices and and property and real estate and advertising billboards and, and streets that you can walk on. Now imagine creating a digital version of that. That's the metaverse. What The metaverse is being enabled and empowered by blockchain technologies. It's another concept I'm sure we're going to get into shortly. One of the use cases of particularly Ethereum is to create tokens or digital goods known as non-fungible tokens, which essentially give us the ability to assign property rights to digital goods for the first time ever in a manner where you don't have to trust a centralized intermediary like Facebook to assign those property rights to digital goods. And so what we're talking about now is a world that's created and replicated in a sense digitally where you can own goods in this metaverse and trade these goods, you can buy advertising space and billboards so that when people enter this metaverse, this digital world, they're going to be looking at things. They could look at your advertising boards, for example, and they're buying property. They're buying all sorts of weird and interesting things like digital art as well. So that's kind of the concept of the metaverse. It'll have different applications as well. So it's not just a sort of single concept of what the the metaverse is. There'll probably be different worlds connected and joined in this digital world, you know.
0: The question too, which I think you've partly answered, is how soon is it going to go mainstream? If I'm hearing you correctly, it is on the cusp thereof, isn't it?
3: If you think about the last year and a half, most of us have been thrust into this very digital world. And so this is, in a in a sense, already the introduction of the metaverse. We do a lot of our meetings online. What we're thinking of and what you're seeing happening now is a company like Facebook rebranding to meta, uh, you know, to to capitalize on this, where they're going to give us the ability to put on virtual reality goggles to sort of avatarize yourself on the Internet to make it feel like when you do an interview like this, for example, while we're not sitting together right now we could actually with virtual reality goggles be sitting next to each other in a space that we've rented in the in the metaverse, for example, um, where other people have the ability to buy tickets to enter this world so that they can see it. So I think it's being introduced already unbeknownst to us, but then some of the ideas of non-fungible tokens like NFTs and crypto assets um, is probably the thing that will allow this to go truly mainstream. I think it'll probably be another five to 10 years before you know we really start to get a good feel for what this metaverse is like and how it's going to change things. That convergence, though, with NFTs, is that happening apace? That's happening rapidly. It's It's been very interesting to see how NFTs have suddenly just kind of entered the cultural consciousness, if you can call it that. You know, a year ago, NFTs was kind of an idea that technologists were playing around with and building out some applications for it. But, uh, you know, suddenly this year, it's, it's kind of hit the mainstream and, and people are buying digital art, you know, essentially owning JPEG files, which, you know, is digital content. We're starting to see content creators using this NFT technology to digitize and and assign property rights to music files to you know audio files so if you think about how we consume digital content right now you know you have a subscription to something like spotify or apple music you're essentially renting a music library now what nfts enable and i think this is still going to kind of not everybody's interacting with nfts in this manner but you'll start to own a music library again, which is quite interesting. We've moved away from owning, you know, music library in the form of CDs or or, or LPs, you know, records, towards renting digital content. And I think what's interesting about this new movement around NFTs is that we're going to be owning music files, files, and other digital goods again. But it's gonna it's gonna to touch us in so many different ways. It's still very early stages. NFTs have kind of exploded into the the cultural narrative uh, around digital art, but it's going to extend far more broadly than that and probably happen quite quickly.
0: Let me ask you this, though. Is there much debate still about how to determine value?
3: What's interesting about what's happening here is we haven't seen ownership of digital goods really ever before. Um, If you think about the sort of physical, the real world that we, you know, interact with and that we're very familiar with, we have very good methods of pricing physical objects and goods, you know, in the economy. What we don't understand that well is how to price digital goods. So like I was saying, NFTs give us the ability as society and people acting in an economy to assign property rights to digital goods. Now, if you think about your digital life and anyone listening to this, think about, reflect on what, what do you own that's digital? You have some apps on a phone, it's software, You don't truly own it. You might pay a fee to download and use an app to get rid of the ads on the app, but you don't own that software. Think about, you know, like we spoke about audio files or Kindle books. When you buy a book on Kindle and you you end your subscription, those books also go away. Same thing with Spotify. And you can think about all of the other digital stuff that you own. You upload photos to Facebook. You don't own those photos anymore. They now store it for you on their servers, and they're able to use it in ways that make money for them. Which is really comes down to processing this data in order to better target ads at you. So what NFTs now do is you have the ability to own digital goods outright yourself. It has an economic value to you. You can sell it to people, which means, you know, there's possible income and revenue opportunities directly in your hands. So you're empowered in a sense. But then also you have assets now, digital assets against which you know, you can borrow money. Let's say, <laughs> you know, so so you can think about real estate as an asset that most people own. Banks like it as a collateral to extend credit against, loan against in the form of you know mortgage loans and bonds. You have you own equities and and, and stuff, and you know some kind of asset management portfolio. But now think about all these other digital goods that you're going to own. Uh, many people are already owning that has economic value to them, and they will be able to monetize it in certain ways. So they're games like access. Infinity and other games built on the Ethereum blockchain where you can own goods inside the game and as a capitalist you can essentially rent those goods out to other people who want to play the game but they want to play the full price to play the game and so, so this is going to be very interesting dynamics around understanding how these assets work digital good ownership for the first time ever in an entirely new economy and ecosystem that's powered by blockchains and smart contracts and payments can only be made in cryptocurrencies so yeah it's difficult to kind of value these things very well because this technology and these different goods are so new but yeah and so it causes a lot of confusion there's also a lot of scam so people need to be careful around what it is that they do go and speculate on in the space but i think it's going to be profound in terms of the influence that it has in our sort of digital lives and the, and the types of goods that we own
0: you've listed some of the potential assets those then who are savvy enough to
3: seize
0: and to capitalise on this new reality with the understanding that there is risk attached. Where in 2022 are the areas of greatest opportunity?
3: That's a uh, wish... I mean, I wish I had a crystal ball a big question, <laughs> so that I can, <laughs> you know, know where things are going. But as we know, the future is a closed book. I think what's most interesting to me is you have different types of applications that have been built on blockchains in the last, you know, I'd say three to four years. An area that we've touched on now is is non-fungible tokens or, or you know, property rights of digital goods. That's something that I think culturally is gonna be quite important to log into applications in the, you know, in the next few years. You're not gonna have a username and a password as you do now. You're gonna to have to own a token, which might be an NFT, when you have that on your wallet, the application will become accessible to you. Okay, So it's going to come to everybody in different types of ways. It's not going to just be music libraries or books or it's going to be software licenses or login tokens. It's going to be a whole variety of things. Like I said, these goods are going to have an economic value. So kind of park that concept. Then the other concept, which has been very interesting, and that was kind of a big theme in the in the crypto assets and blockchain space a year ago, hasn't gone away though, development is still ongoing, but the hype has kind of passed, is the area of decentralized finance. Decentralized finance is interesting because you can build smart contracts in order for it to contain business logic so that you can have a full-fledged bank, for example, that lives purely on the Ethereum blockchain. So it's a fully digital programmatic bank powered by smart contracts. It's a bank without a bank, it's all on the internet. And I think what's most likely gonna be very interesting in 2022 is as, as NFTs start to interact with these DeFi applications. And that's going to be very interesting because it'll give you the ability to you know, own these digital goods, but for it to unlock additional economic value to in the sense that you can now use it as collateral for loans. So that's an area that's going to be very interesting. And I think another area is a concept known as a DAO, D-A-O, a Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And what a DAO is, it's essentially a smart contract on a blockchain like Ethereum that gives you the ability to coordinate incentives amongst a group of people in in an online community, um, but also coordinate in the sense of trying to achieve common goals by pooling capital. A very interesting recent example was the U.S. Constitution, the 13th ever printed copy of the U.S. Constitution went on auction at Sotheby's. And within a period of five days, a group of crypto nerds decided it would be a good idea to form a DAO and to raise capital from thousands of of people who essentially send ether or another crypto asset into the smart contract that the DAO was then able to use to bid at auction to purchase this constitution. Within five days, they coordinated from nothing. They raised $43 million in crypto and they bid at a physical auction. They were outbid in the end by the founder of Citadel, which is a large American financial services company's founder and CEO, Ken Griffin. But the concept of Raising capital and allocating capital over the internet based on memes, I think is going to be a very interesting concept, especially when you start to see these clubs as you can essentially think of them. Online clubs or communities where capital can be coordinated and allocated as they start to bid on real world assets. And so it's kind of a hybrid of meme-fying capital raising and allocation. There's, a, there's an aspect of private equity or venture capital involved here. Um, but these things are me- moving at the speed of the internet. It's moving at the speed of memes, so to speak. And, you know, these memes are really interesting in the life, the lives that they have. And so to answer your question, I think those are kind of the two areas that I think, uh, you know, could be interesting to keep an eye on in 2022
0: chris becker you've got to come back and visit us next year our brave new world it's uh, it's exciting it's terrifying uh, but what you say is absolutely necessary and absolutely relevant if we're going to get a grip on uh, on what is happening in the future now uh, thank you so much for joining me on no ordinary wednesday chris becker investex blockchain lead And that for a fitting segue into the realm of global trends and possibilities. I'm joined now on No Ordinary Wednesday by Investec Chief Economist in the UK, Philip Shaw. So, Phil, a very warm welcome to you and thanks so much for joining us. You recently hosted a webinar with the deputy editor of The Economist magazine. You discussed the forces that are going to shape 2022. And it was outlined in the top 10 from a star, a Tom Standage, the a deputy editor, and it included a backlash against big tech, crunch time for climate change, and also a standoff between democracy and autocracy. That is quite a list. Which prediction, which forecast stood out for you as a game changer as we look ahead to next year?
4: Uh, Hi, Jeremy. Yeah, Tom spoke on 10 issues. Ranging from the economy, you mentioned the tech lash, i.e. technology giants under fire, both in the West and China, all the way to space tourism and the rivalries between the various startups and, and the superpowers. There's a lot of food for thought amongst that. But you know, if I'm going to pick one subject out, I'll look at what he said about cryptocurrency and its possible evolution. In summary, he remarked that it was likely to become more regulated. Uh, and critically, that the head of the securities and exchange commission in the United States actually understands it very well and is in a very good position to introduce regulations. He actually drew an excellent parallel with Napster. I don't know how many people remember remember. remember Napster, but this was a piece of music sharing softwares in the early 2000s. Now, its use was deemed to be illegal, but it managed to morph into something that became both legal and and also mainstream. And what Tom was saying is that this is the possible path of cryptocurrency, not that cryptocurrency is illegal, but that they might be morphed as well become into the mainstream, and perhaps eventually have more in common with central bank digital currencies when they are launched in due course, and perhaps stablecoin as well, which is the, the private sector equivalent of CBDCs. I'm not sure over the extent to which this evolution will transform various investment possibilities. But overall, it could reshape the way that both households and firms manage their payments. Now, I really can't do this justice in two to three minutes. Tom's presentation on the webcast was excellent, and it's really worth watching properly.
0: Let me just get a quick view from you on that then. If you talk about cryptocurrency going into the mainstream, is it a trust deficit that people have got to overcome, or do people simply need to learn to understand? it better?
4: Well, I certainly need to uh, learn to understand it better. That, that That's certainly the case. And um, in terms of the trust, there has been some regulation on the, uh, the exchanges where the cryptocurrencies are stored. Some of the remaining issues are Who determines the supply of cryptocurrency? Do we need to regulate things like margin for particularly retail, but also financial investors as well? There is an awful lot there technically as well, which um, one would hope that the regulators will be fully au fait with. So, yes, there's a lot to do there. It's a very complicated subject.
0: Well, let's move away from The Economist, and on that same webinar, you spoke about your team's latest report on its macroeconomic outlook for next year. It's entitled Transit to New Normal but a risk of delays.
4: Well, if we dial back a year, I think it's fair to say that over 2021, the the world economy opened up quickly and more briskly than most people expected. And that, that was helped by the vaccination programs, though, of course, a lack of availability and to a certain extent, vaccine reluctance in emerging markets meant that that pattern wasn't uniform. But we've had bumps in the road over the year in the global economy, but we're likely to have got 5.5% global growth this year, which is pretty decent given the circumstances. And as I said, stronger than most people would have predicted 12 months ago. Um, what's happening now is the two things. Um, cases based on the the Delta variant, uh, particularly in Europe, are increasing as the economies are opening up. And in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, winter is approaching and people are spending more time indoors, which is increasing increasing the transmissibility of the virus. But most recently, of course, the discovery of the Omicron variant has had a new dimension to the issue, given the questions everyone's asking, its transmissibility, its severity, and its resistance to vaccines as well. In terms of what the delays are all about, in terms of the world economy itself, demand has been very firm over the past 12 months. But we've also seen various supply bottlenecks in both product and labor markets. And that sparked a rise in inflation worldwide. And the key question really in developed markets is when the major central banks there, um, especially the Federal Reserve in the States, will, will raise interest rates. Now, the early evidence, um, and it's very tentative still, implies that COVID cases based on the Omicron variants are less severe than Delta, Um, and if you listen to senior Fed members, they seem more resolute that they need to slow down their emergency policy, i.e. slow down QE bond buying, end it sooner, perhaps by February, March next year, um, and that would enable an early rise in interest rates. So, in terms of possible delay to that normalisation of monetary policy, the Fed seems still going down that route despite the Omicron variant. Elsewhere, including the UK, it's less clear, Um, we had expected a December rate increase, i.e., next week from the Monetary Policy Committee here. But members seem very uncertain uh, about Omicron and they may well hold their fire this time and, and actually delay the tightening until early next year. And the European Central Bank is due to announce um, what it calls the recalibration of its quantitative easing programme next month. But again, uncertainties about Omicron mean that that could be delayed as well. So, there are plenty of question marks here in terms of monetary policy, but it does seem as though the Fed isn't going to delay its normalisation. If anything, it, it is going to speed it up because of strong demand in the US economy and because of high inflation rates.
0: And I look forward to talking to you in 2022, Investec Chief Economist in the United Kingdom. Philip Shaw, thank you for joining us on No Ordinary Wednesday. Last but certainly not least, Leslie-Ann Gatter, Head of People and Organization for Investec in South Africa. And she's here to talk to us about the changes in the world of work and the valuable lessons that can be drawn from these past two years, difficult as they have been. So welcome Leslie and the pandemic and lockdowns have compelled us to change the way in which we work. I think that's common cause. It's been a social experiment on a global scale. In your opinion what have organisations learnt and maybe more importantly why are so many struggling to adapt?
5: Thanks, Jeremy. I think uh, it's a complex question, even though there is just so much written about it and a proliferation of opinions and ideas that we are all inundated by all the time. I think on the, the really positive side, organizations have learned to trust and like something that we've taken for granted in this massive social experiment that we've seen. The role that organizations have typically played in the world is that of management and control. We've used contracts and compliance and constraint in order to to hold people, to make sure that they are effective and productive, that they show up on time and that they do what is required of them, and then we use balanced scorecards and rating scales uh, in order to automate humanity as much as possible and try and assure various stakeholders, shareholders, clients, regulators, that we have a control over people and we have a control over the organization and we can guarantee delivery and profits. My take on what the pandemic has done for the world of work is really turn all of that on its head. And in the forced move of sending huge corporate home, essentially, we have had a massive turn that the environment has has imbued so much trust in people. And by and large, they delivered. By and large, humanity rose uh, in corporate work and, and really delivered. So that productivity was admired and capacity and capability was just praised continually. So the idea that Employees need to be controlled and managed, I think, is an opportunity for us to grasp and say, no, employees value trust. They have the ability to be about self-discipline. They can use stretch uh, and they can use, you know, challenge in order to really build an organization with us and, and give so much more. But I think that very thing is the paradox. The very thing that we imbued employees with and organizations with, that high level of trust, that high level of, of stretch and, and ability is what's also letting us down now. The thing we're struggling with is to now let go of control. When control is within our grasp again, then we can once again hold employees and control the organization we are seeking to do that again. So I think organizations uh, and executives who have so much burden of responsibility, obviously on their shoulders, easily revert into patterns of, of control and say, how can we gain back control or take back control of this organization through those similar mechanisms, constraint and compliance and contracting with people. And so now we want to contract time again, You know, amounts of time in the office. And I guess it was both the gift and the curse of the social experiment.
0: I suppose the challenge for us then is to continue to be adaptable and to deliver on that trust that you spoke about. Now let's talk about this acronym WFH, work from home. It's the new reality for us, There's uh, the as you've just mentioned. What about the foreseeable future, 2022 and beyond, if you can? Are we just going to continue zoom calling each other in the workplace
5: there's some interesting components to that question a component parts of it the first thing is is obviously uh, should the pandemic allow and we as, as a you know the human race decide that we're going to live with it or in spite of it or somehow it dissipates and disappears then it will be interesting to see what return to office looks like and I use the word the word return to office deliberately because people are quite sensibly offended by the idea of return to work. Because this work from home is, is what we've been uh, busy with for such a long, a long time, for so and so many months. Uh, and we have worked extraordinarily hard at home. Research at the moment that's emerging shows that this environment that is this combined hybrid environment of people being on Zoom but in the office is the worst of both worlds. Uh, That either we all in or we all out. Uh, And that for functional meetings and functional engagements, relationship building, it's incredibly difficult to be in an office environment, but continually trapped on the screen and in Teams or Zoom, meetings all the time. So it's hard to to predict. But what I do think we need to acknowledge with the tech is that we never had this tech before. I mean, it was there, but we weren't using it quite like we are now and it has advanced and it creates something called presence. We we really do have presence with Zoom. We really are able to show up and be very engaged and very uh, involved in this. So the idea that it it should dissipate and just go away would be a terrible loss for, for all that we've gained during this time. That said, I think... We all speak about missing the face-to-face. We want the levels of engagement. So I think possibly the more interesting question is what will happen to the office rather than what is work from home? Because work from home looks like it's here to stay and people have gained so much from it and they want to retain some of it, if not all of it. So what will happen to the office and what will happen to office space? And I really think the challenge now is how do we use space differently? And is it still about just having you know, a sea of desks and chairs? Or should we think about the office in a different way now and what we use it for and how we really leverage the, the engagement and the time people have face-to-face?
0: Maybe then, in conclusion, answer a couple of those questions if we can. Let me finish with a big philosophical question. The theme of our podcast is possibility. So, in your opinion, what's the single biggest possibility, the potential that this new world of work holds for us both as businesses and, I guess, employees?
5: Just to say, obviously, I love the word possibilities, and I do think that the greatest possibility that we have here is to really return to a way of seeing people as human beings and having this highly engaged, highly relational way of using people. The entire world is seeking meaning. We have so many employees in our our midst, across every industry, across all sectors that seek out meaning through their work, better jobs, more meaningful, in much more inspired, much more engaged environments. And so the idea of employee value proposition is still kind of like a mechanistic thing in my mind. I think the pandemic has afforded us Opportunity to really see people in their context, in their homes uh, as people and really imbue the, their jobs with so much more meaning uh, and so much more, so much richer experience for them that A retains people, B delivers on much higher levels of performance and C really changes the nature of the relationship between the employer and the employee.
0: And as you mentioned, Leslie and Gatter, all predicated on that word trust. Thank you so much for the uh, optimistic conclusion to this podcast. And I look forward to talking to you again in 2022. Sounds good. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of this mega edition of No Ordinary Wednesday. If you'd like to read any of the articles from the Possibilities series that I referenced today, please visit investec.com forward slash possibilities. Before we go, I'd like to give a big shout out to Lenyaro Sella, the producer of the show for all her hard work in bringing this podcast to life in 2021 and sourcing all the fascinating guests that we've had on the show so far more i hope next year all that remains is for the investec focus team and myself to wish you a fabulous relaxing festive season with your loved ones if you're looking for cerebral fodder to listen to over the holidays search for investec focus radio SA wherever you get your podcasts and hit that subscribe button we will be back in action on the 15th of january for what we hope is a prosperous year for south africans for all of us to seize possibilities coming our way
1: The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investec Limited and subsidiaries, authorized financial service providers, registered credit providers, and long-term insurer.